can consider together. And we know the verse in, from 1 Peter that says that the word of God lives and it abides forever. That's the verse that says that we're born again by the word of God that liveth and abide, abideth forever. And so God's word always goes on. It always lives. It always abides. So we know for sure that God's word is a settled thing. And it will always be there. The question only is, do I actually have it? Now I want to go and look at a verse in Luke. Luke 21. And verse 33. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So this goes a, a little bit beyond what I was just saying. It's not just the word of God that somehow is available to us, but the words themselves, they abide. And we need to have faith that God can preserve that and that it can be preserved to us today. And so that really brings up the whole question about the different manuscripts that are out there. And we're going to look at that a little bit. I'll show you on the screen some of what I found with that. Um, but the bottom line to that, I just want to say right in the beginning uh, for especially those who are younger, when you go and look at all those manuscripts, there are very few differences um, between them, really. Mostly, they're the same. And there are some differences that came in, but I just say right now that nothing to make a big difference in terms of doctrine or any key point that we have in Christianity. So I think it's helpful and important to understand that. And yes, there are a few places where there's uncertainty as to what was there. But we'll even consider that a little bit more as we go through here this afternoon and see what that means to us today. I would just say, when it comes to differences between those manuscripts, there are the so-called three big passages. After that, everything else are relatively minor uh, discrepancies or maybe word order changes, things like that, omissions in a few cases, but they're very short. The three big ones are the last verse of John chapter 7 down to the first verses of John chapter 8. You remember the woman taken in adultery. That whole passage is not in a lot of manuscripts. And, and yet I believe that it really should be there. It was the word of God. And I think what happened was there were those who didn't see how that really fits in with the teaching of Scripture, and it got deleted by some, and then that got carried on by others. Um, I'm not going to say a lot about that, but that is one of the big discrepancies. And another one um, would be at the end of Mark. The last chapter of Mark in the main isn't in many of the manuscripts. A lot of the older ones don't have it, and that chapter also should be there. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm not going to go into them today, but we did go into them when we took those up. Well, not the last chapter of Mark. Maybe, Lord willing, when we get to that. But we did take up um, the, the Gospel of John, and we discussed it then. And that's another reason why we can't answer all these questions in a meeting like this today. But we try to take them up in the assembly meeting, and they're important questions as to what really was in the original. What is the Word of God? And thankfully, these passages are in all of our Bibles, and they belong there. They are the Word of God, and you can be sure that you have them. The third one is 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8. 1 John 5, 7, you'll find, if you look in Mr. Darby, it's not even in there. And half of 8 isn't in there either. And 
that's for good reason because those verses were put in. And the King James has them. And what the King James has is true, but it doesn't really fit there. Somebody put that in to try to add to the Word of God to strengthen up the truth as they saw it, you know. And what they put there was true, but it wasn't part of what should be there. So these are the three biggest things, at least in the New Testament, of discrepancy. The Old Testament has far fewer. But the New Testament has these three big things. Every, everything after that is relatively minor. And I think that should help give us a little bit of confidence as well. Now, I want to look at source documents and... I'll just keep trying to move on quickly here. And for this, we're going to look at the screen. So we'll start on this slide at the very bottom. In case anybody wants to see some more of what I'm presenting here, I put on this the, um, the source of where some of this information comes from. It's from Nick Simon. And this is on BTP's website, um, their library has Nick Simon's book, The Holy Scriptures, Brief Notes on Its Inspiration, Preservation, and Interpretation. I found this information in other places as well. Nick's just happened to summarize it really well. And if you want to get a, just a short summary, well, I'll give you the shortest right here. But his, uh, his little book is, is very helpful. Um, so the New Testament Greek manuscripts are mostly what I'm going to be talking about right now. And... We'll look at a little bit of the Old Testament, but only in comparing the translations. But these New Testament Greek manuscripts, I think it's helpful to understand something about them. And so when the Lord spoke to his holy apostles and prophets, as we just had in Ephesians chapter 2, he gave to them the scriptures, and it was written down. And so we have what Paul wrote, and James, and John and Jude, and so on, and the Gospels. And they had um, what was absolutely perfect. It was God-breathed. And those manuscripts that they wrote got passed around. And the only way they could have another copy was they couldn't take out their smartphone and take a picture of it or put it on the copy machine. Somebody had to write it out, every word of it, until they had another copy. And, of course, when you do that, if you take something as long as an epistle and you write it out, you might get it correct. I'm sure you could get it correct. But eventually, if you keep copying and copying, you're going to make some mistakes. And then if somebody copies from your copy, then there's more mistakes. And that's what I've written about here. So um, the New Testament, uh, from when it was written until about A.D. 1452... That was when printing came in. Okay, that you could only have written out copies. And as a result of that, all the ancient copies are in manuscripts. Those original ones, they eventually wore out. And we don't have them anymore, not one of them. Uh, if you can't discover the errors and fix them, then they just keep on increasing. Every copy of sin is maybe adding to the errors, unless they can maybe fix some of the ones that they find. And... and that means that generally, but not always, the more ancient manuscripts are the more valuable. That's a sort of rule that many go by, but you find sometimes the more ancient manuscripts, maybe there was more bias in the one who was copying, and they're not necessarily more reliable. 
These are the manuscripts that we have today, about 5,700 Greek manuscripts. <clears throat> That's either in whole or in part. Uh, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and so in the early days of the church, they started copying it, translating it into Latin. And they copied or translated quite a bit into that, which we have. And then there's more than a million quotations uh, that can be found in the writings of the so-called church fathers. So that's another indication of what was there originally. And then we have some individual books, these copied out manuscripts that date from within a hundred years of the original. And, and then collections that include most of the New Testament dating back to 150 years or so of when it was written. So that's pretty old, pretty useful information. And the oldest complete New Testaments date back to the fourth century, that's 300s. So a little more, little more than 250 years removed from when God gave that original inspired manuscript. So we have a lot of old manuscripts is the point to that. Where are we going with this? It's because that gives rise to this whole field of textual criticism. You've probably heard of that, but it's important we understand what that is. And so when you have in front of you 10,000 manuscripts and you have a lot of time and you want to know what's what, you start going through them and saying, well, which one probably represents the original? Which are the oldest? What's the most likely reading? Who copied from where? And you start getting into what that is. So the textual criticism is the effort to study the available manuscripts and discover what was the text as it stood originally. Okay, And then critical texts are the result of that work. That is a text that's intended to represent what the original manuscripts most likely were. And we're going to talk about two of those in particular. That is Texas Receptus and West Cotton Hort. If you've heard of that, it's good. Those are the two most important ones that you need to remember. <clears throat> and they define the difference between most of our translations today. But not all the differences, and I'll try to show that as well. So these are some critical texts. 1516, um, after we had the printing press, we had Erasmus. He did his first edition. This is a tremendous work that helped all the ones that followed him. And then there was this Stephen who did a number of editions. His third edition was the first one to give the variations in the manuscripts and the margins, which was a tremendous thing because then all other textual critics after him could know exactly all the findings of his work and where it differed. And when you get down to the days of Darby and Kelly, they don't have to go to 10,000 manuscripts. They can come to some of this work that was done before them and say, well, we've got these variations here, here, and here, and then they can go look at that. And it saves a lot of time for those who come afterwards. And then his fourth edition is um, the one it's a very important addition, as we'll see in a minute, but he divided the text into verses. In case we didn't know that, our verses are generally not inspired, right? This was done by this guy. And they're very helpful and really good for reference, aren't they? So we can thank the Lord for them. But the, the verse numbers are not inspired. What's in the verses is. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we had 10 editions of Beza. And then there's these Elzever editions. 
And this second one is very important, 1633. This is the Texas Receptus, okay? It's the text received by all. It's what Texas Receptus means. That was his claim to it, and people accepted it. And so it has become that today. Some people think this was inspired. Um, it's not. The originals were inspired. It's important to understand that. But this was an important work. And it's almost identical to this fourth edition of Stephen right here. There's only, uh, I think, less than 200 differences. So that came from work that was done before him. And, and then there's this other, Tichendorf is another one, and he was interesting because he found uh, a complete, or the most complete Bible that we have of the New Testament in 1844. He was going around the monasteries, and finally he found this one. It was amazing. So that's the, uh, the um, Codex uh, Sinaiticus, and they, that's a major work that we have today along with the Alexandrian and the Vaticanus. Those three have more than any other. Um, Trigelli's was gathered to the Lord's name in the early days. His work is still used by textual critics. And then Westcott and Hort's our last one. And like I said, this Texas Receptus and Westcott and Hort are the very important ones because you'll find that they pretty well define the difference between uh, as far as the original text between the modern translation. And just a few more comments on this. Mr. Darby and Mr. Kelly, uh, when translating the New Testament, referred to the above critical texts and original manuscripts. They did not just go by Westcott and Hort. They did not go just by the Texas Receptus. They knew what they said. In fact, this next quote I have here, you see Mr. Darby in his introductory notice of the New Testament. He's criticizing Westcott and Hort's text. He said that they were biased. And so he was well aware of their bias. He consulted with what they said. He consulted with Texas Receptus. And then he went back to all of those other manuscripts where necessary to consult with what they said and form his own judgment in the matter. Mr. Kelly did the same. And we'll be looking at a few of Mr. Kelly's notes in just a minute. Uh, bottom line to all this, only a few passages remain really doubtful, and not one of these affect the fundamental truths of Christianity. So you can be quite confident that you have the Word of God, and I can be, and that's a really good thing, since for so many years after God gave it. Thank the Lord for that. So we'll just look at a couple abbreviations here before we go into the text themselves. Um, actually, I think I want to come to this in a minute. <coughs> So we'll just stop for a second, because I want to address another issue. question came up, what about the canon of Scripture? How do we know that the books that we have in our Bible are the actual Word of God, that God meant for these to be, like, wouldn't there be others possibly? And in fact, if you go get the Roman Catholic Bible, you find there are some other books in there, uh, in the Old Testament anyway, the Apocrypha. So, and just look at a couple verses real quick. Uh, Romans 3. This is scripture entirely answers this as far as I'm concerned. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. says, What advantage hath the Jew? Uh, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? It says, much in every way, chiefly because that unto them 
were committed the oracles of God. And so we know from this that the Jew had the word of God. And that which the Jew accepted, that was the word of God. The Jews never accepted the Apocrypha. The Roman Catholics like it because it teaches some of their doctrine. And so they put it in their version of the Bible. But when you look at the other uh, non-Roman Catholic editions uh, of the Holy Scriptures, you don't find them there. You find only what the Jews always accepted and accept right down to this day. The, the books that we have in the Old Testament. And so that settles it, really. It was known when this was written, what was the Word of God in the Old Testament. There's no question, never has been. We still have those books. Now what about the New Testament? Let's go to 1 John. So 1 John chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the Apostle John speaking. And when he says we, he's talking about the Apostles. He says, we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. <clears throat> he that is not of God heareth us, not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so he says that those that know God hear us. The point of this is that believers have always known the word of God. Right from the first days when these scriptures were written, you find Peter talking about Paul and things that he wrote in the scriptures. They knew what the scripture was, and there were other things written, and they knew that those things were not the scriptures. And so all the way down through the ages, uh, the scriptures were accepted by Christians and well-known. I have a book at home. It's, it's, it's the title of it. It's the Forgotten Book of Eden and other of these apocryphal New Testament scriptures. And the point of this writer in putting them together was to say, here's, the, here's all the others. You want to know it was rejected? Here they are. And you go through that book and you look at them and it's really clear they're not scripture. There's a huge difference between Scripture and that which is not. And so, these Christians always knew what was Scripture. And then Nick Simon points out on this uh, subject that in 367 A.D., Athanasius, you remember him? He's the one who stood up for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who, I think it was the emperor, says the whole world stands against you, Athanasius. And Athanasius said, well, then I stand against the world. <laughs> he wasn't going to compromise the Lord Jesus or his person. So he gave a list of those books that were accepted as the New Testament canon, and they're identical to what we have. Now, what we have isn't because of the list that Athanasius gave. He was simply verifying what Christians all knew up to that time. And we know it since. This is the word of God that we have. So those are just a few quick points on the canon of Scripture. And I just want to move on then to translations. And we're going to look at this. But first, I just want to say uh, something about the principle of Bible translations. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. I think these principles are very important. In the end, we can't prescribe. We don't have a law as to what translation should be used. But these principles belong to all of us, and we need to consider them. So Matthew 5 and verse 18, it says, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
And the Lord, the Lord is speaking there of the Old Testament. And he's saying it's all going to be fulfilled. That was the scripture they had in those days. And that really is the principle of the word of God. Every last bit of it is going to be fulfilled. And Isaiah 55, 9, another very important principle, says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. This is really important. It's very important when we come to the Word of God and translating the Word of God. So when you look at what the Word of God is, you have a couple of different translation principles. And those principles are, should we go for what the words say or should we go for what the thoughts say? Now, this is what God says, that his thoughts are so high above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. Are we going to do a very good job if we try to say, I know all that the, God, the thought of God was in this verse, and so I'm just going to give you the thought? I think when we look at this verse, we must understand that's not going to work very well. You might get something of it. We should understand something of the thought of God. But the idea that we're going to capture the word of God by getting the thoughts is a really bad idea. Okay, so I just want to lay that out. Here's the verse for it. Um, <clears throat> that brings us to the types of translations. So there's literal translations. And literal translations tend to be word for word. And I'll show you a chart in just a moment with some of those on it. And then there's dynamic translations, which are more thought for thought. And I want to be careful when I say this, too, because when you go from one language to another, there's no way you can just go word to word. Words don't all follow exactly the same. Um, and, and we have to understand that as well. But we have to be careful that we're trying to get what the words mean. Um, paraphrases are terrible. Okay, So don't even bother with a paraphrase. It's a storybook. If somebody's saying, I'm going to tell the Bible in my own words, and it's no better than what this person is trying to tell as a story. If they happen to have a really good idea of what the Bible's about, that paraphrase might be a pretty good story. But it's not the Word of God. So they should not call those Bibles, because they're not. <clears throat> um, let's go to John chapter 6 and verse 63 to continue on with this thought a little bit. John 6, verse 63 the Lord Jesus says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 17, another one, and verse 8. The Lord Jesus said, Now they have known that all things... Um, I'm sorry, verse 8. Get the right verse here. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. They have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee. You see the emphasis that the Lord puts on the words themselves. It's important. He gave the message. We've seen this before and considered in John chapter 12. The Lord Jesus said that his father gave him what he should say and what he should speak. And that is not just the substance of the message, but the very words with which to express it. The words themselves are important. And... These are some of the scriptures that state that. And so if we really have that respect for the very word of God, not just the whole thing is a thought, but the words that it's expressed in, 
then it's going to affect very much how we take up with translations. We're going to be careful about it. Okay, so it's important. The belief of the translator is also important because there are times when you can't get the words exactly the right way. Um, or you might not get the thought the right way. And that really raises the next question. I'm going to come back to the belief of the translator as we go through this. But is it even then possible, or is it right to translate the Word of God? Wouldn't it be better then if everybody learned Greek and Hebrew and then just went right back and tried to get it from there? Then we don't have any of these problems. And that's a fair question, because when you look at words, they have a range of meanings, don't they? So, for instance, I, I thought up a kind of ridiculous example, but I'm going to give it here anyway. If I can, I will can the program to can beats, right? Because I don't like beats, so I'm going to can the program to can beats, <laughs> if I can. So, I use can three different times in that sentence, right? And they didn't mean even remotely the same each time. If, if I can, if I'm able to, I'm going to get rid of can. I'm going to can the program. I'm going to get rid of the program to put beats in cans. That's what I'm meaning, right? And I'm using one word, can, three different ways. You can see it's this little word, can, only three letters long, has a wide range of meanings. And I'm using it all in the same sentence. And we understand what is meant from context, right? You put it together, your mind parses that, and you figure it out. <clears throat> now take that sentence into another language. Are you going to use... Let me find the exact word for can and just plug it everywhere in there. That's not going to work. You're actually going to have to find out what word is correct given the context of the meaning of that verse. So you can't actually divorce the words from the meaning either. See how that gets a little complicated? And anybody who takes up another language knows that. Um, when I only knew English, this is all very simple. Uh, <laughs> but it's not so simple. And when you're trying to translate the Word of God, you have to know something about what the thought is to be able to express it with the right word in the, the receptor language. And if you need to know something about what the thought is, then it means that what your beliefs are are very important. If you don't believe the right thing, you're more likely not to get the right thought. And that's all to say that the beliefs of the translators matter. That's just a general principle and something that we should keep in mind. As far as what the scriptures say about this, let's turn to Matthew or Mark chapter 16. Some people would say this chapter shouldn't even be here, um, but this is part of the Word of God. Mark 16, this is one of the big three, right? Uh, verse 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He didn't say, go ye into all the world and teach them Greek and Hebrew, and then give them the gospel. That isn't at all what God did. In fact, right away in Acts chapter 2, you find that there, as soon as the Holy Spirit is given, what did God do? He gave the gift of tongues. And then they say, oh, we all hear in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. And then you find they believed. Now, how did they believe? Well, it tells us. We go to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. I just want you to see some of these because this really shows that 
Yes, translation is possible, and yes, it should be done. Romans 10 and verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What those ones who believed heard on the day of Pentecost was the word of God. Was it translated? Yes. Were there difficulties in translating? Well, the Spirit of God did the translating, so I'm sure it was the best translation ever. But there's always a difficulty when you go from one language to another, and it does show that there is a way to get from the Greek into English, or Spanish, or French, or Chichewa, whatever language it is that the Word of God needs to be brought into, that God is well able to help man to do that, and so that his word can be in that language. We see here, most definitely, it was. And these ones heard the word of God, they believed it, and they were saved. So I just want to say that. It is possible, and it is a right thing to do. Now, I want to continue on, that we have a little of that background. Um, let's see how we're doing in our time here. A little bit. Okay, so... These are the abbreviations that we're going to look through, and I'm going to skip through this right now. Um, if anybody wants this later on, we can, yeah, it works good. Okay, so I'll just quickly go through. So we have Texas Receptus and West Cotton Hort. We talked about these as the two bases for the um, translations. Texas Receptus for King James, West Cotton Hort are what we use for most modern. Uh, J&D translation we know. If you don't know, William Kelly has a translation for most of the New Testament, a good deal of the Old. It's found in his writings. Um, <clears throat> then there's the King James Version that we use, the New King James Version. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this today um, for the main reason that we've been using it for a long time and find it to be... Uh, this is where I'm coming from, essentially. I haven't found a whole lot of problems with it. The problems that I find in the King James are, or in the New King James or in the Old King James. And most of the problems in the Old King James have been corrected in the New King James. So it's a good translation. We'll see it, though, as we go through a little bit. Um, ESV, English Standard Version, uh, pretty good translation, but it has some problems. H, Holman Christian Standard Bible, mostly Baptist translated this. It's not bad. But it has some problems. NAV, getting worse. <laughs> I'll try to show you that. Uh, Net Bible, getting worse yet. NASB, pretty good translation, but it has some issues. Uh, RSV is something that we'll look at a little bit, and I'll show you why here. Revised Standard Version. So before we get onto this chart down below, let's just look up top here, because for those who are into the NASB and the ESB, it has a family tree. Okay, so that came from the revised version. The revised version was written or translated back when John Darby was translating his Bible. And, and Darby and Kelly refer often to the revisers. That's who they're talking about, those who came up with that, this version. And it was a major work uh, intended to be the first great change from the King James. And there were some definite problems with this translation. Um, but it went on then to be revised in 1901 in the American Standard Version. And uh, that version, not because it's American, um, is actually quite a good version. And in fact, the uh, 
Bible we had in Malawi came from from that version. Uh, and we found that over the years to be an excellent translation. The NASB came from the American Standard Version. And so, by and large, it's a pretty good Bible as well. Uh, the RSV came off of that in 1952. You see about a 50-year jump here and then another 50-year jump to the ESV. That's a revision of the RSV. And that's a pretty decent translation. Down to our chart right here, we have a whole spectrum of translations going from literal to paraphrase, literal word for word, then we have thought for thought in the middle, um, and then paraphrase is just retelling the story in other words. And this doesn't necessarily mean that one of these translations is better than another because even if you're using a good translation principle like word for word, you might not be using the right words and you might come up with a terrible translation. But at least you've got a good principle. And generally speaking, uh, going to the left, the translation's better as far as accuracy here. The problem with these translations is they're not as readable. Okay, so the ASVs, a lot of people don't like that. I find it fairly readable. And those of us who read the J&D find it fairly readable. But they're not quite, they don't flow quite as well as some of the other translations. This is why a lot of people like to get, not just for archaisms in, in these old translations, but some of these other translations like the New King James or the ESV, they just flow better. It's, it's easier to understand just from the structure. So the King James and the New King James are essentially the same. They're very literal, word-for-word -word translations. Some places you have to go more with the thought, but they're very literal literal. Um, NASB, quite literal. ESV, a little less. Revised Standard Version, its source was even less so. Interesting. They went backwards on that one from all I've read. Uh, Homing Christian Standard Bible is fairly literal, but getting a little bit more in the thoughts. And then the, the Net Bible and the NIV are very much thought for thought. That's what they, they call them, dynamic equivalents. Uh, we take the thought of what was in this verse we figure out this thought, and then we try to put that thought in the translation the best we can. Okay, so then going on from there, which we already discussed, that's just a, when it comes to the Word of God, that's a bad idea. When it comes to translating generally, it's a great idea. If you're translating the words of men, fantastic. Get the thought and put it in the next language. It's so understandable. But when it comes to God's Word, if you do that, you lose a lot. And so they did. Um... These others we won't even talk about, you know. Uh, if you want to, we can later on, but uh, I don't want to spend time in that in this meeting, and I didn't spend a lot of time with it. So what I'd like to do is then just look at the difference between these translations for a few minutes. And I started with one that's in the New Testament because we can look at Greek, and we can all be Greek scholars. Actually, none of us knows Greek. I don't know Greek either, but you'll see why I'm doing it in a minute. Um, I want to look first at differences between manuscripts. Like, what of these translations might be a little bit different because the Westcott and Hort was different from the Texas Receptus? And that could be very interesting. But first of all, for how I lead this out, here's the verse, of course. Texas Receptus is always up front. Westcott and Hort is next. This is the actual Greek for this verse. And then I go right down in every one in this order. Sometimes I go from J and D to William Kelly, but not always. J 
King James, New King James, ESV, Holman Christian Standard, NIV, Net Bible, NASB, and Revised Standard Version. And uh, other than the first few, no particular reason for the order. Okay, so first thing you can see, even though you don't know Greek like I don't, is that there's a difference between these two lines. And you can see that uh, Westcott and Hort doesn't have three Greek words that I've highlighted here. And those words are the Son of God. Um, and if you look at the RSV, you see that they even make a note. Other ancient authorities admit Son of God. Right? So that's, that's really what this all comes down to. What was actually there? What did it look like in, in those source documents? But this is an interesting example because even though all of these newer translations tended to follow Westcott and Hort, they all included what was in the Texas Receptus. In other words, they were all doing textual criticism. They were all saying, ah, it's not Westcott and Hort, but I think it should be there. And they all put it in. Isn't that interesting? And so there's actually there's a difference, a, dis, a disagreement in the source here, but not a disagreement in the end translation among these ones that we're looking at. Let's go on to the next one. Mark 1.14. Here we have Jesus came into Galilee preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. If you look at the Kelly translation, you find out he has of the kingdom of God in parenthesis. And that is this whole missing section in Westcott and Hort. There's a lot of more modern manuscripts, or not more modern, but uh, manuscripts that were discovered more recently after Texas Receptus that said this wasn't there. So what happened? Did we lose something? You listen to a King James only person, they said, yeah, they took away some of the word of God. But did they really? You go down to the next verse, which I put down here, and you find out that there's no question it was talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent you, believe the gospel. And so somebody else probably just came and inserted it here to make it clear what they were talking about. But is there anything actually lost there? No, not really. Okay, so that's how a lot of these differences end up looking like, which you have right here. Give another difference. This is a little more important. This is John chapter 3, verse 13. And this is the verse that if the last part is in, it gives us something important about the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you look at J&D, no one has gone up into heaven save he who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is the phrase right here, who is in heaven. That's missing out of Westcott and Hort and a lot of these other manuscripts that they found. Um, and you read that, and Mr. Kelly has it as well. I haven't shown him here. The King James and the New King James have that clause. And you go read Mr. Kelly on it, and, and he gives quite an extended explanation about how these manuscripts omitted it, and they shouldn't have, and why, and why it belongs there. And he says, well, this is a danger of being carried away by a few favorites, be they ever so venerable, that is reliable and in general trustworthy <clears throat> he said you have to go by more than that and his judgment was that this clause absolutely belongs there and so he puts it in he's not just following the modern trans or the, the Westcott and Hort 
or you know the more uh, the other manuscripts he goes by what he thinks is true according to the word of god how he understands it and his textual criticism now if we didn't have that if the esv is correct and that actually isn't there you still get this truth about the lord jesus and plenty of other scriptures okay so we don't really it's no attack on him it's just a matter of the original manuscript Okay, so uh, just a couple on King James only people. It says, uh, in the King James, he shall be as gods, knowing good and evil in Genesis 3 and 5. And they get very upset when they see a modern translation that says, you will be as God, as J&D says. Right? And they say, oh, is, this, is God evil? Well, it doesn't say God is evil. It says knowing good and evil. Of course God knows good and evil. Um, and so a lot of the attacks of the King James only people are are that unfounded as you see here um, and or based on a verse like this this is actually one of the ones they pointed out but all of the newer translations including the newer new King James version changed it to be you know like what mr. Darby's judgment was on that verse Daniel 3 another one that they like to point out about the modern translations it says the fourth is the form of the fourth is like the son of god remember talking about the one walking around in the fire they were loose in the middle of the fire and we enjoy what the king james says it was the son of god what a wonderful thing but the fact of it is the king nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually have faith until the fourth chapter here in the third chapter he understands that this is a marvelous person who is in the fire, but he doesn't know that it's the Son of God. And so Darby has like a Son of God. This man doesn't yet know God. And other translations have a Son of the Gods. He just knows this is a marvelous person. By chapter 4, he came to trust in the God of Heaven. And then he would have known something more about it. Okay, so it gives an idea. This is not about original manuscripts. This is a matter of how they were translated. Okay, so I'm going to show a couple verses on the ESV. Um, this is, and what I'm showing now are problems. By the way, what I did was I searched for what are the problems with the ESV, right? <laughs> what are the problems with the New King James? What are the problems with whatever? And you find their critics, and you look and see what their critics are saying the problems are. And you look that up, and then you, you know, it's just a way to get right to the heart of what people think are the real problems of that translation. And the end of that process was I came up with 104 verses that I looked at this way, and I'm just showing you about 20 of them. Um, <clears throat> so this one, you see that the ESV has the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Now, that makes it sound like the Lord Jesus was created. That's really not a very good translation. So we have the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. This was the Lord Jesus, wisdom personified, right? In Proverbs 8, being there right from the beginning, eternity passed with the Father. And you see a number of these translations have this problem. Um, the NIV, the first of his works, the beginning of his creation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says. The Lord Jesus wasn't the beginning of God's creation. God created everything through him. 
now they could say, well, we don't really take this to be the Lord Jesus. And I'm sure they don't mean to say the Lord Jesus was created, not the Baptist. They would never say that. But you lose something um, if you go down that road. So I just want to point out that difference. And I, and I would tend myself, I can't go and judge from the Hebrew which one of these is right, but I would tend to trust Darby and Kelly on this. And... Um, and go with the way that we've always taken that. Luke, another one. We just had this verse recently in Sunday school class. Um, the child to be born will be called holy. That's not it. It's a holy thing which shall be born of thee. And you see there's no discrepancy in the manuscript here. They're the same. Um, you find uh, the net translation will be holy. The ESV comes from the RSV. You can see it's the very same. They're not always the same, but here they are. But that's, a, I believe, a poor translation. And all the other translations don't even go that way. So it's kind of interesting that the ESV uh, put that in. He is holy, not just called holy. That holy thing which shall be born of thee. Is the Lord was it holy as to his person, his very nature. 1 Corinthians 11, 13 kind of interesting. The ESV puts the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. But that's not the teaching of that chapter. It's teaching about headship. It's not teaching about the marriage relationship or headship within that. And it's so interesting because the ESV even goes on in verse 11, nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. It's the same word. And in one place they put wife and husband, the other place they put man and woman. Why do they do that? So there's some issues there. They weren't consistent and probably some sort of a, an agenda, but I, don't, I didn't follow through to see what that all was. Anyway, a couple examples of the ESV. So let's look at the Holman Christian Standard. I don't know if anybody's interested in that. Um, they have some gender issues in that as well. Uh, my spirit shall not remain with mankind forever. And um, always strive with man is what that is. But to take man and to be substituted for mankind or humans or humankind just to get rid of the thought of man, that's not what the original was. There's the idea of headship in, in the word man. And that comes out in many places. But to change it to something that's just not even there because... Maybe you want to make it more gender inclusive. Isn't the right idea. The ESV has a big problem here too. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Um, that isn't what it is. The word of God speaks of the spirit abiding only in Christians of this age. And he will abide in us forever. And so the whole thing is wrong. You know, in that age, he came on people. He didn't abide in them. So this has something to do with the belief of the translators. not a matter of of you know what the sources were. Here's another problem with the Holman Christian, which is a problem in our King James Bibles, right? <clears throat> a big problem. One of, the, in fact, Mr. Darby and Kelly said this is the biggest problem in our Bibles, is that whosoever committeth sin uh, transgresseth also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. No, it's not. Sin is doing what is wrong. Sin is lawlessness, doing my own will. Transgression of the law is transgression of the law. It's not the same. It is also sin. 
but that was their view and that got corrected in the new King James. Isn't that nice? And so some of these errors have been taken out. But in the Holman Christian, it, they left it the same way that the um, that the King James, old King James had. And the same with the NIV. But most of the other translations got that one correct. Uh, NASB. <laughs> so... There's a couple people here who use this one. It's a pretty good translation. Um, but there's some issues with it. And uh, this is one of them. Isaiah 57:15. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. This is speaking about God as to what he is, as to his being. Like I live in a house. God lives in eternity. Time doesn't affect him. He can go back and forth in it. Just like I can go back and forth in my house. You know, that's really what this is saying. It's speaking about the greatness of God to transcend time and space and everything that there is. That's all. Those are all created things. But in the holy, in the I'm sorry, NASB says, the "Exalted One who lives forever." Now that's true. He does live forever. But how much do you lose when you translate it that way? You didn't get the words. You took a thought and said, "I think this is what was meant." I'm going to express the thought this way, and you've lost really a whole lot of what that verse was saying. So just an example. You can see they're not the only ones. Some of these other translations had very similar, although really odd with the net translation, who rules forever. Now here's the biggest problem that I saw with the NASB. <clears throat> this has long been noted for the NIV. But you can see there's no difference in the original here. No, no argument about that. But it says, for, for Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have fathered you. That is a denial of the eternal sonship of Christ. Whereas we have the Holman Christian standard, Today I have become your father. NIV, the same. The net and the NASB are the same on that. These all, in that statement, deny his eternal sonship. And I don't know if these men meant to do that when they translated it, but that's what the statement says. And it really is, today have I begotten thee, as, as a, a child on earth, but not father. The son was always the son. The father was always the father. They existed in that relationship from eternity past, not in the day when the Lord Jesus was born on earth as a baby. So our time is is gone, but I'm almost done. Are we okay just to go for a few more minutes? Okay. <clears throat> NIV, next one. Um, and I think I'm going to go through this pretty quick. Uh, you can see they deviate from all the others on 1 Corinthians 5.21. And they say something that's true. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. But that is not the full truth of that. He knew no sin. It wasn't just that he didn't sin. And this next one um the NIV has a similar problem, so it might be a systematic thing with them. You can see that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. Well, that's true, he didn't sin. But he was tempted apart from sin because there was nothing in him that would answer to it. Sin didn't tempt him. That's the real meaning, and the NIV is not giving that meaning. And so, and just a couple of examples of where they are on that. There's so many others with that one, but here's another one. First John 22, uh, 2 verse 2, um, 
the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's saying the Lord Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. If so, then that's everybody's going to be saved in the end. Now, I'm sure in their mind, they're saying he is the atoning sacrifice available for the whole world. I'm sure that's what they're thinking. But that really isn't getting what this verse is saying. It's talking about propitiation, not substitution. And this is where I was saying the belief of the translators matters. And if you're going to take up with one of these other translations, you better know that and you better carefully check it out. You're going to lose something of the word of God. In that translation, I'm going to, I think, is, is anybody interested in that? For sake of time, I'm going to come. Let me see. Okay, so just real quick what the net was. I only had two. Um, is what the Lord, what God said when at the fall. You will want to control your husband, but he'll dominate you. That's like, whoa. <laughs> the ESV is a little strange on this one, too, for those who like the ESV. Okay. Um, and also the net, this young woman instead of the virgin, the beautiful verse is AS 714 uh, and that um, they put it in there twice when it isn't even in there twice, it's like a double underscore of not a virgin <laughs> so it's not a virgin as far as I'm concerned um, why not the JND translation okay, I think it's a good question um in his revised preface to the second edition, Mr. Darby wrote, and I'm just going to paraphrase that sentence, that some translations are written to be read in public and others aren't. They're written to be studied from. And he said mine's to be studied from. And he was, if you read more of what he wrote here, he's very happy with the work that the King James translators put into that translation to make it very readable at that time, right? Um, and, and others too. But it's a great, accurate translation, and that was his exercise. Now, my own exercise on this is, and I've heard this from other brethren, and I believe it wholeheartedly, is that we don't want to be a sect with our own J&D translation. That anybody who comes to those gathered to the Lord's name, well, this is the Bible we use. Um, that was not their exercise at the beginning, and I think it's important for us as well today. Uh, other than that, I'd like to use the, the, the J&D translation. Um, but what are we? We're Christians gathered to the Lord's name on the ground that there's one body and that one body is every believer. And we don't want to be different from other believers on things that are not essential. Things like um, having our own translation. I know we have our own hymn book, but that, I don't know how else to do that, right? Um, so I think that's a very important as to why not the J&D translation. Yet, if somebody wants to read it in the meeting, we do all the time. I think that's okay, too. But it's better to have a translation that's in general use, like the King James has been. Um, and I guess I just have two final points. On thee and thou in current language, let's go to Luke chapter 1. And I'll finish this as quick as I can here. Verse 42. I think we mentioned this when we came to it before, but it says, She spake out with a loud voice, this is Elizabeth, saying, Blessed art thou among women, and or women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. So thou and thy, spoken to Mary. Is she deity? 
And the reason why I'm making this point is that thee and thou is not a special language reserved for deity. It was the language of the time, 1611, it was carried forward. But to go from that to you and your in the Bible is not an issue. It's the same as thee and thou was at the beginning. It's not a special thing. There's no special words reserved for deity in the Bible. There is a reverence reserved for deity, and it comes out in the words. But it's not a special set of pronouns for deity. Um, so that was all I wanted to say about that. And as far as assembly considerations, it says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. I think there's ways that we can consider one another, and yet... There have been a number who've read from different translations in the meeting over the last couple of years, and I haven't really noticed where it's created disorder. Uh, I think it's nice if we try to read more or less in the same, this is my own judgment, if we try to read more or less in the same translation. Um, my own experience with the New King James is that it follows along quite well with the Old King James. Uh, it has corrected a lot of the mistakes that are in the Old King James. And so if there are those using that, I think it's a quite a good translation to use. And for many of us who are in this room, we learned all of our verses in the Old King James. And we love it. And I hope maybe people wouldn't mind if I keep using my Old King James. Uh, <laughs> I would just caution if anyone goes to a different translation... Uh, even ESV, I've looked at it a little bit, Holman Christian Standard or any of those other um, New American Standard Bible, be careful with it. It's your responsibility to make sure that what you're reading is really the Word of God as to what was done. Because we have the Word of God in the manuscripts, but the translations are can be something different. You can have men introducing a lot of their own thoughts there. And so... Everyone who's going to take any Bible, even with the King James, we should be checking it out, right? And we do this all the time in our reading meetings, you know. We, this is what we think it is and why. And we, we read uh, from trusted sources, we hope, and we try to discover that. But if you're taken up with some other translation, be very careful. And don't be careless about it. God considers his word to be of all importance. He set it above his name. Um, and it's not just the whole thing, it's the very words themselves that he considers important. So that's what I had, and some have thought maybe it'd be good for questions, but there's a lot of younger ones here, so maybe we'll close in prayer. And if anybody wants to stay around and talk about this later, we can continue on as well.